Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Dr. Roland Clark, um, and welcome to the East European Studies New Books Network podcast. It's my pleasure today to be speaking to Albena Shortkova about her new book, Rebellious Cooks and Recipe Writing in Communist Bulgaria, which has just come out with Bloomsbury Press. Albena is a postdoctoral researcher at Royal University, Bochum, but she also has experience working in diplomacy and as a journalist and editor at a number of prestigious publications. She's written a number of journal articles and book chapters on the history of food and cooking in communist Bulgaria. And this book, Rebellious Cooks, is based at least in part on the research that she did for her PhD in history on this topic. Also this year, she's published a book called Communist Gourmet, The Curious History of Food of the People's Republic of Bulgaria, which came out with Central European University Press and is aimed at a slightly more popular audience than Rebellious Cooks. Albena, what was it that first drew you to start studying the history of cooking and recipes? Are you a particularly passionate cook yourself? Uh, it's a good question. Well, I, I guess it was more my um, passion for eating than for cooking that led me into studying food, I guess. Um, at some point in my journalistic career, I was um, doing a lot of travel writing and the most um, amusing uh, part of it was writing actually about food experiences while traveling abroad mainly. But that made me reflect upon Bulgarian food. And uh, then I started realizing how strange some of our practices are to foreign people. And this is how it all started. I, I kind of wanted to write a book at first about to explain our Bulgarian food ways to people who are not locals. Um, and then I gradually actually realized how incredibly complex and fruitful um, food is to look at history. Um, and this is how it all started. So instead of writing a, a light, um, humorous book uh, for foreigners to translate Bulgarian food practices to foreigners, I started actually studying food quite seriously. And then it grew into academic studies later on, after I published my first book, which was actually for popular popular readership. Nice. Um, and this book really is... There's a lot of um, thoughtful scientific methodology behind it. And it's based on a series of 23 interviews that you've done with women from a variety of backgrounds where you sat down and you talked to them about their memories of cooking during state socialism. And you also talked about their scrapbooks of recipes with them. Can you tell us a bit about the process of doing these interviews? Like how did you find your informants? Were they willing to talk to you straight away or you had to sort of twist their arm a bit? Well, to find them wasn't that difficult um, in the sense that I already had a quite a... I used my journalistic and private network at first. And then also because I had published already my first book, which became quite popular in Bulgaria, I was I used my contacts They came that came along uh, mainly through um, a large Facebook group that I made for the book. And many people actually got in contact with with me when I announced that I'm looking for persons to interview. Uh, So this was the first step. And then I also used later on, because I analyzed the kind of people I wanted to have a a good um, representation of people from all, well, various walks of life. Um, And 
various. I expected actually a difference along the line, urban, rural, for example. So I was start. I started looking for specific cases, um, and I also used uh, the snowball effect, meaning I asked people I interviewed to uh, introduce me to other people, and I was a bit wary of a of a bias um, about uh, in the with the fact that I was looking for people who had scrapbook had um, had um, um, yeah who who. Um, who had scrapbooks themselves and were maintaining them. So uh, that could have mean that these people had a special attitude towards food. So I was looking also for people who didn't have scrapbooks, and that was in, really difficult to find. <laughs> um, yeah, well, and then these people did take very eagerly uh, because I the, the the topic of food is a very 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 soft and nice one they they love to talk about about food and they lighten up and they um their humor uh, becomes better and also it's a bit of a it's a it's a sort of a biographical interview which which i think is very pleasant for most people um it gives them control of of the nar- over the narrative of their past People generally love doing that. I am even convinced that there is a therapeutic effect of it on people. Um, and when you were doing these interviews, you're you're doing them with the scrapbook in front of you. And um, how does that change the interview, do you think, as opposed to just sitting down in a cafe and talking? Um well, we didn't always open these scrap. Well, yeah, I did take a look at these scrapbooks in in in, in most almost all cases at first. Um, well, of course, it brings memories back because th- these scrapbooks are full of of um, they're not only records of of uh, recipes as such, but they're practically records of family events um, and festivities which these women remembered. So it was like um, walking down memory lane. It was really um, a, a process of recalling private history and the best moments of it. And that it was really pleasant. Um, how do you say scrapbook in Bulgarian? Gutvarski um, tefter, you would say. That's, uh, tefter is, would mean a, a, like a notebook. Actually, you, you wouldn't say scrapbook, but that's a term I, I uh, came up with because I thought that's the most adequate to to what it was because these are documents that are not just written recipes, but they contain often just bitten pieces of paper put inside or pasted or written, rewritten, so it's a... Yeah, it's a. It looks like a scrapbook with mo- in most cases. And if you say that word to any Bulgarian, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. Oh yes. Um, so the scrapbooks are actually a really core part of your research. What what made scrapbooks different to cookbooks for women? Well, what was I think what was the main the main difference is that they are actually a very different kind of entirely different media. Uh, to record or can be cooking advice because they are incredibly customized. Um, first of all, these scrapbooks of those times, because of the way they were collected, meaning recipe by recipe, written by hand often, or sometimes rewritten into the book from a piece of paper, made the selection of recipes very rigorous, which me- meant that only recipes that were really liked mostly went into these scrapbooks. Uh, secondly, the way they were written uh, was very specific, and it's it, it was with with always with references to the 
person who would or the source of the of the recipe which was almost in all cases another person so the recipe would always be called something like for example banica which is a popular bulgarian dish of um auntie maria for example or the banica of um, ivanka and the woman immediately knew who ivanka was so it was like also like a, a um an album with, of friendship, <laughs> in a way. Um, and then uh, they were also written in a way in which, which was very economic from the perspective of the women who wrote them. Because, for example, they would omit all, any kind of information that that um, that is self-evident to them, but they would be um, more explicit or or even adding detail and their own. Mm, notes uh to uh, about elements that they were more uncertain about or needed really to remember the exact proportion how to increase it or how to decrease or how to what kind of a dish even to use so it was a very very customized set of recipes and also because they were all um tried in most cases these recipes were exchanged um after the dish was tried already, uh, because that happened during all kinds of personal meetings where one woman would would bring something she cooked at home and the other woman would taste it and then ask for the recipe. So this allowed for the women to recall when they see the recipe, also the the actual dish and the taste of it. Um, And this is naturally not the case with, with cookbooks. Um, well, so many things like that, which makes make the cookbooks very, uh, the scrapbook very individualized, um, make them actually a very different different media. Uh, the, the trust which women felt in the recipes, they were tried already. So, for example, if you if if they would have to cook a big um, festive meal, they would go to their scrapbooks because they were certain there, there is less risk there, that they will waste their time, their ingredients, etc. Um, yeah, so in this sense, there was there were just two very, very different media and cookbooks were just used in a different way also. They were more to discover new things, but then with less certainty, they were more laborious and etc. Um, and you mentioned just now that they weren't always in a book. Sometimes it was just in a drawer or a box. What was the most interesting way you saw that people collected or collated these recipes? Um, well, indeed, some of them were just like in a in a drawer, all kinds of bits uh, of uh, and pieces of papers, and they were written. They were collected in a very random way, uh, often. Uh, so they were written on, on all kinds of, of of different papers. For example, um, perhaps the most in- funniest was the uh, a form for blood tests or a pres- medical prescription, um, because one of the women worked in a in a hospital and she would um, um, take some of these recipes from her patients or people who were laying in 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 in, in beds in the room. So she would go around and ask them for for. Uh, their recipes um there was another woman who worked in a i think um as a cleaner in a in a police police office and she had uh taken a page from the record of uh traffic police fines and it was written on the back of it <laughs> and there was on a piece of wallpaper uh on a museum ticket so all kinds of really incredible kind of um carrier carriers of this information but um uh, then then they they were 
collected into uh, some some women went very far to 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 shape their collections into something more presentable although mostly these were just like little notebooks but but sometimes uh, and i found more than one i i think like three four perhaps of the of the 20 three collections that I I saw were uh, multi-volume collections, which meant that women would keep like four or five separate notebooks, each of them titled uh, and dedicated to a different sort of dishes. For example, uh, salads or or main dishes or soups or desserts or pickles uh, or preserves or, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and there was also one woman who uh, actually the, where where I started was this this one amazing book which one of the women had produced and it really looked like a commercial book because she had divided all the recipes into sections um, she had made uh, very neat copies not all were handwritten some were and they weren't very consistent in the sense that some were typed on a typing machine a typewriter and some were just like uh, hand handwritten or there were some paper cuts but they were ordered very neatly contained some of her notes then they were copied on a copying machine and they were made into an actual book so it was binded together with a table of content and even with a dedication in front and a title um, and, and with hard covers. Um, yeah, it was really amazing. And she said that actually she made more than one copy of this book. She herself made, I think it was three, and also her colleagues made copies for themselves. So it was really like a little bit Sam is that, like a real <laughs> production company. <laughs> Um, just to go back to these interviews again uh, for a minute, do you feel like doing twenty three was enough? Was there any type of person you really would like to have interviewed that you didn't manage to speak to? Um, they were enough, and then they weren't at the same time. Well, I what I did is I um, I made the interviews in batches, and I was analyzing each batch, uh, like mapping the the because I was after what meanings did women invest in in the action of exchanging recipes collecting them um, so I, I was kind of mapping each interview and each batch um, and at some point after a while I realized that I have reached a point of saturation that that actually um, two or three or four interviews didn't bring any new meaning any any new anything new to to, to the, this map of meanings um so this is when i stopped and this this was at 23 actually i made a bit more but uh, there were some inconsistencies so i removed part of the interviews um but what i did not at the end have and i'm a bit sorry about is i did hear uh during the interviews that there were also men who collected such recipes recipe books but i did not find any I, somehow I, I never found a man who had such a book and so I couldn't even ask if he would talk to me so it remained but anyway it was more about the female perspective so in a, in a way it wasn't uh, dramatic because <laughs> mm, one thing that comes across really strongly is the way that um, scrapbooks and cooking allow people to talk about what it meant to be a, a woman under state socialism much more generally um, but they also used recipe books 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about the recipe books that you discuss in the first half of the book? Um, how did Bulgarian recipe books change in sort of the 50 years after the Second World War? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there were several major changes, perhaps, um, which were very prominent in the... Some of them were very prominent in the first decades after the Second World War, so early communist times. And then towards the late 60s, there was this shift and opening a bit uh, to a certain extent. And um, so some were temporary, some were not. But but let's... I'll try to summarize some of them. First of all, as a general rule, these cookbooks were simplified and the recipes were simplified in the sense that you could you could you could see in the in the cookbooks before the that were published prior to the in the decades prior to the war how they became more and more complex and diverse and they would they would be um accommodating or would be separately focused on the interests of urban house lives of uh, upper middle class for example or poor families so it was really a, a lot of differentiation um, also in the topics in the directions in which the recipes went after the second world war it's it, it it seemed as if all that was gone and all the cookbooks looked quite the same in the sense they were all they all tried to be quite universal so like encyclopedic to uh, to 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 give you to serve as a kind of a cooking encyclopedia, not just not just one of the many cookbooks, um, and the recipes were very simplified, and there weren't very extensive explanations. Uh, also, the ingredients and and I think two two things played a role, and it's quite clear. One is that the ingredients uh, were um, less uh, less 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 diverse and less available. So you could see, for example, one example is how meat became at the beginning before the Second World War in the, in the cookbooks. You could find sections with various kinds of res- recipes for various various kinds kinds of meats, and Bulgarians ate a lot of uh, sheep and mutton and um, goat and lamb and 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 less pork more beef and that kind of all became uh unified into kind of a uni uni meat <laughs> formula so you just uh, recipes with meat you know and the same happened with fish for example fish was never a very um developed um part of the culinary culture in bulgaria so bulgarians didn't make a very big uh, kind of differentiation between different sorts of of fish. It was not eaten very, but in the communism, it became completely like almost gone from the cookbooks or very very basic. Um, and then the cookbooks were kind of standard. The recipes were as a, as a form of advice were standardized, so there was no variation in the way they were written. And I think the quality you could say in general it worsened because you can you could see. Uh, in the earlier books, very fine designs, nice, meticulous illustrations, and then they became very sloppy with hardly any illustration. And it's amazing because, of course, you have the development of of, of equipment, printing equipment that becomes more and more advanced, but you don't see it reflected on in the quality of the cookbooks of of communist Bulgaria. Um, and what else? I, and and that's probably important. They became kind of professionalized. The the the, the idea was that the 
the domestic cooking uh, needs to be reduced in time. Women were supposed not to cook too long. Um, and therefore, all the recipes were kind of simplified. And also, that was a trend that started before the Second World War, but the, the women women were supposed to learn about uh, nutritious qualities of, of ingredients. So there was a lot of instructions, really detailed instructions about the, the um, vitamins and the proteins and all kinds of like the content of each ingredient, the quality, nutritious qualities of each ingredient and how to process it. So in that sense, it was kind of professionalized, but also it was a one-sided push to professionalize because there wasn't a lot about cooking technologies as such. the craft of cooking wasn't very much in there. It was more like industrialized kind of cooking that you need to keep the vitamins, you need to um, to, to be economic in, in what you use, but not how to make it very, very delicious. It wasn't like, a, in that sense, it didn't develop far. So it becomes more about health and less about, or more health and science and less about the craft of cooking itself. Yes, and saving time. And then you have actually also there was this political uh, dimension to these changes because after the Second World War, there was this first period in which there was a purge of everything that had to do with Western Europe. You can see that in, 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 in like if you, I, I studied this quant- quantitatively, you can see the re- sharp reduction of the number of recipes with Western titles even. Not, it wasn't that the recipes were removed, but the titles were changed. Uh, so all these references to the West were removed. And um, also, um, um, yeah, well, and then, but then in the sixties, you have I think the the, the start of of um, mass tourism in Bulgaria had a very um, major impact also on the cookbooks because what happened was two things. On the one hand, uh, all these Western recipes returned because one of the purposes of the of this cuisine was to show to prove that the Bulgarian culture, communist culture, is very cosmopolitan. This was part of the the projected identity and the other thing is that the national cuisine the conceptualization of national cuisine came back which was almost gone in the first years after the second world war for all kinds of political reasons and then it it started coming back more and more prominent and with a peak at the end of the 1970s so basically i would Um, yeah say that would be (laughs) yeah that's really interesting um People, a lot of the women you interviewed were really unimpressed with the recipe books. They didn't like them, um, and they reported that they didn't use them very often. Mm-hmm. What what was it that they didn't like about them? Um, I I saw an interesting kind of um, hesitation of of the women between re- rejecting completely um, the notion of the uh, that there was ideology in the cookbooks, and at the same time being conscious of it and rejecting cookbooks because of the ideology of, in them and of course it wasn't even across all the all the narratives some women were politically more conscious than others some felt still sympathy towards the the, the communist system for all kinds of reasons while others were more critical and i think it had a connection 
uh, how they their attitude towards the cook towards this ideology in the cookbooks was 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 related to their attitude to the regime as such. But of course, this ideology was very, very prominent in many of the cookbooks, um, and some of them referred, in general, to these cookbooks as as being too ideological or carrying this dry and non untasty kind of uh, attitude to food. Um, and for this reason, they didn't want to cook after, or um, and that that was one of the one of the reasons they were rejecting them. The other um, point of criticism was that the books were often unreliable. Uh, the the advice was um, not um, always comprehensible and uh, not always leading to 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 good results. Uh, so, um, and that was a very big contrast with the uh, scrapbooks, of course, where the recipes were tried and were taken from, from usually from people whose cooking uh, skills they trusted. And that makes a big difference when you know how it comes out and you know it's actually a good recipe as opposed to it looks nice in the picture. Right. And I think it, in general, uh, cookbooks were considered to be more a laborious, laborious way to 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 find a new recipe because you need to read many pages and then find, and, and many of these women really didn't, they were really work, full-time working women, all of them. So they didn't like have the, the, the luxury of, of spending several hours to live through a cookbook to look for a recipe. So I think that also was one of them. And, and most of all, many of them just had, two or three of these cookbooks, uh, which meant that they didn't have a big choice in the between quality, between style of cuisine. So it was all like very, yeah, very black and white to them also about these books. Yeah. Um, one way that you approached these, the scrapbooks, to go back to the scrapbooks, uh, was to count the recipes. I was interested to see that there weren't actually that many recipes for main dishes. Um, but the desserts were the most common recipes that people collected. And then there was doughs, like breads and pastries, and then preserves. Um, of course, these are trickier things to cook, and you need written recipes for them, um, as opposed to like main dishes, you might you do enough that you remember it. Um, but was there also something about the social or economic function of desserts and doughs and preserves that made these things important in communist Bulgaria? Yes, you're right. That that one one major reason is, of course, that these recipes are uh, not only difficult to cook, but they, they it's actually something that has been observed across the world, that um, such kind of books contain mostly these two kinds of recipes, of uh, preserves and, and desserts, for this reason, that the proportions are very important. Um, but yes, there are also cultural reasons for that, I think, and, 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 and that are grounded also in the, in the context. And in the communist context, restaurants were not accessible to everyone and also not liked by everyone uh, because of their quality and character. So from the 60s on, when you could speak of certain welfare in the country that becomes palpable, uh, there was an enormous trend of um, gathering people at home for dinner party for parties, basically. Um, and pastries or desserts were mostly mostly prepared uh, at home for such celebrations. And so were also these dough based recipes. And I think one of the one of the reasons also was that um, 
you the, the ingredients were always available because all these dough-based recipes dishes are based on very basic very basic ingredients they are just endless variation of 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 main ingredients like sugar uh, flour butter or oil and yogurt and and, and that's it um and, and that was mostly available and it was easy from 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 these basic ingredients to to uh, make a festive dish which was not you and if you if you or, want to organize a big and festive dinner you can't count that you will find lobsters <laughs> or you can't you can't count on anything that is particularly uh, outstanding as a, as an ingredient but this was something that was always available so it became like a centerpiece of the table and actually it wasn't news also because um the Bulgarian cuisine has always um, had a prominent place for, for dough-based dishes in the past. And it was just a continuation. It just didn't break into a more modern diet. Um, and then the preserves, they were deemed uh, by many essential to go through the winter. And of course, there wasn't... There, I think this is important to note... Bulgaria, differently from other places in Eastern Europe, never suffered a really a real hunger. So it wasn't like if you don't make preserves, you will go hungry in the winter. But it was a way to provide sufficient diversity on your table. Um, vegetables, most of all, which weren't available easily in the out of season. It was a very seasonally season based cuisine in those times. Uh, so it was like again a continuation of traditional practices, um, which were um, brought from from rural into urban kitchens, due to the lack of a well functioning food industry and trade, and just continued to exist in this extraordinary, exaggerated way, perhaps um, through times which were considered to be modern. So there is a bit of contradiction in in that sense in the communist culture. Mm, um, yeah, and preserves. You're not going to starve if you don't have them, but they make your life better. It makes you happy when you eat them. <laughs> yes, and and then you can choose how to prepare them. There was certain certain choice, a very narrow still, but but there was something on sale in the in the shops, perhaps especially in the cities. But it would be, people didn't trust very much the canning industry because of all kinds of personal experiences with it. So they preferred mm. to make it themselves. They thought it's going to be better quality and they kept their connection to their land. Yep, that's true too. Um, so state socialism, as you said, you don't can't always get what you need. Um, it's famous for its shortages. And sometimes things like bananas or even oil uh, are difficult to get hold of how did women deal with the shortages when they had to when they had to cook well one one obvious strategy was to just pile big stocks of of like of of all kinds of ingredients once you find them which many people did um and the other was this that they they that i just mentioned that they um, of most 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 urban families kept some kind of connection to the villages uh, of their families uh, or 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 did gardening uh, it was a very popular um actually time spent 
from the I think in from the sixties on because um, there was also a practice of of obtaining of uh, a, a small plot to garden so people were very busy with that as well and then you have all these produce that you need to can and 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 keep for the winter um, and uh, but it, it it is interesting from the perspective of recipe exchange that actually the recipe exchange was one of the ways to deal with these shortages because it came along with an exchange of valuable information how to procure ingredients and um, sometimes you can see that even in the uh, in the in the these scrapbooks but also in the interviews uh, um, it came up many times that women were exchanging such information uh, they were they were mostly tasting the dishes cooked by another woman uh, of course because these dishes were prepared at something with something that was available on the market but but then they also got references you can find the best of of peaches for example canned peaches on that market or you could go there and then you will find these vanilla or you know things like that information like this so there's more than just a list of ingredients on the in the scrapbook. Yes, there oh. there is quite a, it, it it may it is quite clear that there was a lot of of um of such kind of essential inform, information exchange. Um, and of course, cooking at home is not the only way you can eat. Uh, and in state socialist Bulgaria, the government um, at various times was keen at feeding people at their workplaces or at public canteens so that women didn't have to cook at home, mm-hmm. but they never really became popular. Uh, why didn't women want to eat at these sorts of places? Um, I think there were more more than one reason for that, but um, first of all, it is very important to know that there was a significant variation in the quality of food in these canteens. And some of them were rated extremely high, uh, but mostly they were... Um, quite suspicious <laughs> and um, very few people trusted the, the the practice the cooking practices in these canteens and rightfully so because they witnessed um, it, it many instances um, of how ingredients were reduced for example less meat a lot of fat um, or just or sometimes it would be there was I, I actually found a lot of uh, publications through the different um, decades uh, how um, there was like an, an effort of the state of course to 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 make the best out of these canteens to um, to ensure that they provide a very diverse and good menu healthy that there is always a variation of of of, uh, of meals that would satisfy each taste, but in practice this hardly worked. So it was often just um, you can see this by by the in, in, by through the criticism that is published in the press, for example. There was a lot of uh, one type, for example, a lot of almost every day and almost every dish um, is with broad beans, haricot beans, which were very popular and still are in Bulgaria, or with other cheap ingredients uh, or pota- a lot of potatoes, but hardly any meat, hardly fresh vegetables. There was a lot of, um, for example, the practices included, uh, for even in the high season of certain vegetable, you wouldn't 
cook with fresh vegetables, but you would open cans because you need to cook for 200 people or 300 people in a very short period of time. And then you just, they just didn't have the equipment. They didn't maybe have even access to these vegetables. And in any case, they cooked with cans of tomatoes in the high season of tomatoes and so forth. So all that um, brought arguments um, in the eyes of, of women not to use this food to take home and feed their family. But there was more to it. And it was not on, it just that also cooking at home remained one thing you could do, one luxury you can afford and, and do for your family because there wasn't much else that money can buy, you know, and what, there wasn't like a big range of entertainment. Um, people couldn't afford to go to restaurants always. Uh, most families actually mentioned that they hardly went to any restaurants or once a month at the best. So it wasn't like it was... And that was one thing they they did daily was to to bring fresh cookly uh, home homemade food to their families. So it it had a so a lot of social meaning in that. Mm. Um, and you also argue that it's got political meaning. the The title of the book is called Rebellious Cooks. Uh, what's rebellious about these women? Does does being a rebellious cook means you don't follow the recipe, um, or is there more of political statement or yes no not really not really not following the recipe it's more um actually that was my main question uh when i started working on this research was uh to what extent is it possible it is possible that uh, there was uh some form of micro resistance in the kitchen which which seemed to me i have to admit improbable at the beginning but i actually started uh, my starting point was uh, that i found in one of the one of these scrapbooks that one of the women had actually hidden sensitive political information she has written in her um uh, scrapbook the um, the members and the um, uh, founding act of the first bulgarian political dissident uh, group and and I when I asked her why did you do that why did you write it there in your in the middle of your cookbook among among the recipes, and she explained that um, she was this was because she was afraid that she might be her her apartment might be searched by state security, which happened apparently previously, so she thought that this is the safest place to hide to hide this type of material that no what nobody would even think of of looking there. Um, and then I found more examples of political satire, satire in, in, in such books. Not, not much, but still some. So that was one dimension, and I was wondering about this. But actually, of course, uh, it, it, wasn't, it was political, but not in this direct way. Um, so, for example, one political side to it I found, rebellious political side, was that some women collected Western recipes and they would go and and find people you know sometimes they some of them were telling me how they went uh, then to the seaside and there were tourists on the beach for uh, beach foreign tourists um and they would go and ask them for for recipes and or or take recipes from foreign magazines um and the f- and 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 they were telling how excited they were about these recipes and the funny thing was that these recipes were completely unusable to them because they 
didn't have the ingredients or even didn't understand what these ingredients were. They didn't know them. So they couldn't use these recipes. And nevertheless, they collected them and they thought of them as precious. So that was a political act of collecting something that is forbidden, culturally forbidden. It was vetoed in a way. Even if there were, uh, of course, Western recipes, if you look in the cookbooks, but it was something else. It was their own reach into the forbidden zone. Uh, you you actually got in contact with a foreigner uh, from the West across the Iron Curzon, which was you were not supposed to do, and you got from there something that nobody else has. And it's only yours, and it's access to that world that is close to you. So it was kind of... So this was another, another element. And then... A, um, I, I could think now of one more uh, very prominent. It was the the um, religious holidays of the past, Christmas and Easter. Uh, these holidays were kind of um, the communist regime, which was very atheistic, tried to erase them and installed instead New Year celebration instead of Christmas. And for Easter, there was no replacement. Uh, so, uh, for example, for Christmas, uh, women would cook traditional, um, first of all, the fasting before Christmas Eve uh, was observed sometimes. So you had these recipes for fasting. Then for Christmas meals. Uh, but perhaps even more prominent was the political connection with Easter, because on Easter, there was a, in, in the Bulgarian Orthodox tradition, or Christian tradition, you have... Um, this idea that on, on a Thursday before the Easter day, uh, the uh, eggs should be painted. Eggs are painted in Bulgaria in all kinds of colors and motifs. So this is on, on, the, on the Thursday night before Easter day. And some of the women were telling me, and I also remember this from my mom's <laughs> stories uh, in my childhood, that on the, uh, there were these party activists at, at the workplaces where the women would work who would always organize a meeting of the party or the or of the all the all the people in the all the women were called for a meeting on that night to to avoid so that they don't um, follow the traditional ritual of painting these eggs and some women said yeah well we just um, escaped these meetings we didn't go to them and we went and painted eggs so it was a kind of a of a um, conscious act of uh, insubordination of what is expected on a geological level from them which actually grew into very kind of general sometimes statements as some of the women were saying well, the kitchen was a very private space and because everything else was organized and the communist regime was trying to, uh, it was notorious for, for its attempts uh, to interfere with every aspect of your private life from childbirth, which is not only communist <laughs> actually phenomenon, of course, but so from childbirth to, I don't know, to marital relationship to yeah how you're supposed to cook at home and how long. But nevertheless, when you close the door, they were saying in the interviews, nobody knows what you do, how many hours you spend and how many eggs, <laughs> how decadent is your meal. <laughs> so it was a kind of a luxury of privacy and of, of, of yeah, abundance in a way um, where there was no much space in the society to, to have it. And of course, if the government says you should eat at a canteen and you don't, that's resistance. And if the government says, here's a recipe book, and instead you put together your own scrapbooks, 
that again is slowly, gently pushing back and saying, no, I, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Yes, in a way. Thank you, no. <laughs> yes, it was like that. Of course, yeah, well, it wasn't like obligatory, obligatory, but, but there were there were many attempts at pushing people into these canteens and into streamlining all kinds of uh, private uh, practices along the ideological lines. Um, so it's become apparent um, pretty clearly by now that this is a really interesting book if you care about the anthropology of food or the history of food. But why do you think people, someone should read it if they're not interested in cooking? Um, what is there for people, historians of censorship, economics, gender, publishing, labour? Um, is it a book that speaks beyond its own um, subject matter? Well, I think it's all that <laughs> what you mentioned and even more because in a way... Cuisine is simply, food is simply a medium to look at, at a period, a historical period. Um, it is uh, one of the so-called phenomena total, total phenomena, which offer a cross-section of all the social material reality of a historical period. It gives you access to anything from social hierarchies to economy to culture to gender uh, or international relations even, if you wish. Uh, by reading one single menu, you can, um, you can find out how far what is the representation ambition, the, the, the riches of the society, uh, how far its connection its connections go, and, and so many other things. It's, it is a very... Food is very political, very political, and, of course, very economical. It's, it's that it, it, is a very, it stands on a very interesting cross-section between, between social and biological, which makes it even more interesting because uh, it, it has the complication of... Of bio, bio, uh, biological needs and 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 habits and preferences, uh, and tastes. You know, it is a very. Uh, there are many many aspects to it, and all of them are only only now. Actually, it was a very neglected topic, and only in the last two three decades there there is more and more coming. Not only just nutrition stud nutrition studies, but studies of psychology of food or cultural history of food, like this book is, um, and political aspects, etc. So it it is a very rich material, I think, and I I think that. Any historian could find something for him of interest there. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, thank you so much for your time and for talking about um, all this really interesting material. It's a book that made me constantly hungry while I was reading it and talking about it hasn't been any better. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your interest. To, to the snacks cupboard. Um, yeah, you. so thanks again. And hopefully we, we see more of... Um, this research from you in the in the coming years. 